Welcome to Sovereign Self, weaving spiritual awakening with the fabric of everyday life. Your host is Zofia Renea Morales. We'll discuss and show you how you can achieve the highest potential in your life through divine wisdom and really live. Now, here is your host, Zofia Renea Morales. Welcome back to another episode of Sovereign Self. This is Sophia Renea Morales, and today we are going to discuss finding a spiritual connection after religious abuse. Uh, before we swing into that with our guest Veronica Monet today, uh, I would like to invite you to get to know your own spiritual gifts a little bit better. I know many of us go through this world swimming in this water of who we are, and we don't realize that how we are is unique and gifted. We think everybody is kind of built that way. And so I created the superpower quiz to give you a glimpse into the mirror to show you your uniqueness, the things that make you special that other people don't necessarily have. It takes about two minutes. If you grab your pen and your paper, you can find that at superpowerquiz.us. Again, that's superpowerquiz.us and get the answer to what is my number one spiritual superpower. So now that I've made that invitation, I would like to invite our guest today, Veronica Monet is a spiritual and sexual empowerment coach. She brings a unique and transformative approach to her coaching practice that blends IFS-informed coaching, her own personal journey of healing, as well as her credentials as a certified sexologist, anger specialist, and trained rape and domestic violence counselor. She's been featured on platforms such as CNN, Fox, Yale, Stanford, and the New York Times, and is the author of Sex Secrets of Escorts, where Veronica shares her story of sexual and spiritual sovereignty for those that seek similar empowerment. Welcome, Veronica. I'm so happy to have you here with me today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, too. And what a lovely, just a lovely uh, premise that this program is based on. This is very exciting. Excellent. And I think your story is going to fit right in with the things that we discuss here. So you have a really impressive resume. You've done a lot of stuff and a lot of impactful stuff in the world. Uh, is that where you started out or did oh, you have a little no. journey to get there? <laughs> I had a big journey. Yeah, I had a big journey. So I was born to um, I don't know if I go so far as to say they were poor. They were definitely lower middle class, if that. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's probably safe to say poor middle class. It's kind of difficult to say because my, my mother hated it when I said that we were white trash. And, oh. <laughs> and I, I get, yeah, I know. But, but you I, called a spade a spade, right? <laughs> well, I get her point because yeah. my father was a neat freak and and all of our cars were in good repair. We didn't have a bunch of, of old clunkers. We had cars that were clean and, and well-maintained. Yeah. Um, but we lived in a trailer. Yeah. Um, and that's, I didn't start out in a trailer. I was actually um, spent some time living on the uh, river's edge in a, a, a forest service tent. Oh, okay. 
the trailer was a step up then. (laughs) Uh, Well, then we moved into a rental house and it was a very small house, but it was on a very large property. And I had a swing set and mom always grew an organic garden. So I felt very um, rich, you know, because it was a rich environment. Yeah. Uh, And then, um, and then my dad, who was a welder, so that's a very blue collar job. Um, he moved us into a little teeny tiny trailer that today, if you want to go purchase one, they are literally called tin cans. Yes. It's not like, you know, I could tell you it was 18 and a half feet from hitch to bumper. And that tells you something, but it yeah. doesn't tell you how narrow and low it was. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So today's RVs are so much more luxurious and this was not. Yeah. And and this wasn't like the trailer house you think of, you know, in the trailer park. This is a half or less of the size of one of those. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's meant for travel. Now, here's here's (laughs) why my father, he was mentally ill. but it wasn't real obvious because he was functional. He kept a job. He didn't drink. And, um, but he was, did not want us to go to public school. So he uh. didn't go to the same church my mother went to. But hmm. my mother had converted to a doomsday religious cult called the Worldwide Church of God. Oh, okay. And she did that before I was born. So I was literally born into this cult. Very conservative. Um we didn't know it at the time, but it was founded by a, a journalist who actually uh, was molesting his daughter. Oh, my. And yes. that kind of set the tone, even though it was a very sex negative, rigid, um, misogynistic cult. So women were not allowed to speak at the podium. Couldn't You never even saw a woman get up and do the announcements at church. Wow. Yeah. Um, women could do special music. Okay. You can sing. (laughs) Yes, you can sing and play the piano. That's it. So um, the men were in charge and they were domineering and we were often admonished that wives submit unto your husband, even as Christ does unto the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, as the church does unto Christ, excuse me, I got backwards. Let's see, you're a psychologist now. What does that tell us? <laughs> I mean, that's very interesting. I think, I think, I think Christ has been subsumed by churches. Um, <laughs> I would agree with that, but we digress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was strict. I mean, no makeup, and we had oh, there for a while we weren't even supposed to wear polyester because there was something in Leviticus about the fabric. Uh, you weren't supposed to mix cotton and wool or something. I don't know what it was. But... Right. And polyester is a mix of uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So that was a sin. And um, we had to, we had to adhere, basically, we had to adhere to Old Testament, which mm. in essence gave us more in common with Jehovah's Witness and, uh, and Ju- Judaism. Exactly. Yeah. So we kept no Christmas, no birthdays. Um, Days of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Passover, we had that. So we had a, we had a, a belief in Jesus, but, but the whole teaching was it's the whole Bible. 
I read the entire Bible from cover to cover, and I do mean every single begat in there. Oh, God bless you. There's a <laughs> lot of begats. Aren't there? Oh, my God. I mean, I think I spent a month going through begats um, in one year, the year I was 12. Okay. And, and what was your motivation for doing that? I wanted to have a spiritual awakening. Okay. I wanted to be infused with the Holy Spirit. I wanted to just, you know, I loved, I wanted to be a devout follower of God. That's, that's what okay. I wanted. And did it work? Oh, no. Oh. No, I, um, at, when I got to the very end, Revelations was, it made me feel nauseous. I thought I was going to throw up. Yeah, Revelations is intense. And the, the thing about Revelations that was so hard for me was all this stuff about the horror of Babylon and how she must be destroyed. Oh, and, yes. And about her adornment and her makeup. And I was just like, so this book seems to hate women. But yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't like get that. I was just so afraid that there was something wrong with me. Mm. And, you know, I have at this age at 12, sometimes I'd have interesting thoughts and I'd ask my mom, hey, how do I know I exist? And she goes, that's Satan. Oh, and, no. And if I if I had any thought that deviated from the cult, um, it was Satan. And and I was getting the message over and over again that my thoughts were Satan and I must be associated with Satan. So when the Bible made me feel nauseous, I thought, mom's right. I'm yeah. I'm I'm, there's something wrong with me. I'm not aligned with God. Oh, wow. And I felt really bad. Yeah, that's that's devastating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. By the time, now, there, so I was, um, the this wasn't the cult teaching, although the cult teaching was that public school sex education was a communist plot. So <laughs> they were very against sex education. And my parents decided to keep us out of school. And really, it was my dad who made these yeah. decisions. So um, my mom was like, well, how are the kids going to learn how to read? And he didn't seem to care. He had no interest in us getting an education, which was kind of weird because he did go through the eighth grade. And I think a year or two of high school, he never graduated from high school. Right. And then to become a welder, he actually had to go to um, a trade Technical, school. yeah. Yeah. And apparently he was super bright and got all A's, but he hated the social environment. He got picked on by the kids because his parents, his parents were genuinely poor. They were um, migrant farm workers. Okay. That's about as poor as it gets. My dad was picking cotton by the time he was eight years old. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I think it was accurate to say white trash, but mom hates that. And uh, there's a reason my mom <laughs> hates that because she came from a family where everybody was either high school or college educated. And so her mother was a nurse and uh, her father worked in the sawmill, but one of her brothers went on to become a high school principal. And there's just that kind of. Yeah. So she, so she felt like her side of the family didn't contribute to that. Yes. Yeah, it's true. And she and she's right about that. I'm really grateful for. She used to whisper in my ear, "Don't make the mistake I made. Go to college, then get married." <laughs> well, and you marry better when you do it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, 
because you're automatically fishing in a more educated pool. She so wanted me to that go, part. <laughs> she wanted me to go to the church's college and marry somebody in the church. That was what she wanted. And of course, of back course. then we did call it a church. It wasn't until the nineties that it the whole thing came out about the the child molesting and um, financial problems with the government and mm-hmm. um, the, the people my age that were born into that cult came out. And even though they were uh, some of them men who had achieved power in the church, they said, no, this is a cult. And they changed the whole thing because it Herbert W. Armstrong, the founder had um, basically asserted that he was the right hand of God and we couldn't question him. That's usually a red flag that there's a cult thing happening here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, I am the chosen of God, and no one yeah. shall controvert what uh, I have and, to say. Yeah. I was, mm, I was there. I was there at one of our annual Feast of Tabernacles, and there was probably I, I'm not sure how many people were in the room, at least five thousand. And he's like at the podium, and he his hand came down, and he goes, "How dare you question me?" I am the right hand of God. And and I go on overdrive. (laughs) I was 19 when that happened. And I would, I've been looking for a way out of the cult, but it had, it, I was so terrified that I was going to get burned up in the lake of fire when Christ came back. Yeah. And I was afraid of being struck dead by lightning, like, they do in the Old Testament if you go sure. into the wrong part of the tabernacle. So I, I was afraid to say anything bad about him. But when he did that, I went, oh, that's heresy. I'm leaving. Goodbye. Yes, that's my ticket out. You committed heresy right there in front of the whole group. <laughs> I'm so glad you put it out there. So now I get to leave. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So you've been raised in this cult. It's been kind of, should I say, a sheltered environment in many ways? Oh, yes. It was because you put the overlay, it would have just been sheltered if it had just been the cult. Right. But it went one step further because of my father's insanity and insisting that we could not go anywhere, couldn't have any friends. He monitored all of the mail coming in and going out. He ran a prison, basically. Oh, wow. And we did eventually, after five and a half years, we got out of the little tin can and we did get into a single wide mobile home, which felt like a mansion at that point. I'll bet it did. (laughs) Uh, But we were out in the middle of nowhere. We're like two miles away from a little tiny uh, farming city. Mm-hmm. And um, he he didn't he wouldn't let me get a job. He, we were not allowed to go to public school, so I went correspondence course my entire um, childhood. Oh wow! Yeah, that uh, takes some serious discipline as well. Oh, thank you for knowing that. Most people don't get that. By the time I did get to college, and I did not go to the church college, I went to Oregon State University. Um. I was a straight A student. I had honors and entrance and I went straight to um, a tutoring job on campus. And you had an amazing work (laughs) ethic already established. I knew how to study on my own 
and I start teaching the other kids. So that's that's what I did. Right. Okay. So we are up on our first break already. But I want to put a pin in this because I want to understand you had this realization and this permission in your mind to leave when he committed heresy. I want to understand the nuts and the bolts of leaving because you had a parental prison happening as well. So when we come back from the break, I want to dig all into that. And uh, those of you who have been out here listening to this, a lot of times stories like this can be extremely triggering either of things that you've gone through in the past in your own personal upbringing or judgments around the experience. And what I would like you to do is to take note of what those things that have popped up for you are, because that gives you insights to what's still hanging out in your own subconscious mind that perhaps you might to explore a little bit more deeply and hang with us. We'll be right back from the break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Hey, beautiful soul. Sophia Renea Morales here. I've been doing Sovereign Self for over a year now, and I would like to hear from you. Tell me what you want to hear in coming shows. Go to TellZofia, that's T-E-L-L-Z-O-F-I-A dot com. Drop me a quick note and let me know. How has this show supported you? Where should we go next? Or are you perfectly content with where we're going at the moment? That's tellzofia.com. Your opinion is critical in informing where I take the show next. Thank you so much and live soul first. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Sovereign Self with Sophia Renea Morales. We'd love to hear from you on the show today. Call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or if you'd prefer, send an email to asksophia at transformationspace.co. Now, back to Sovereign Self. Thanks for hanging in with us through the break. This is Sophia Renea Morales, and I'm still here with the amazing and wonderful Veronica Monet. And when we went to break, she had shared that she'd had this moment of realization. In fact, this kind of unwritten permission slip that had arrived when the leader of the cult committed heresy that allowed you then to say, okay, you know what? I am breaking from this group. But you also mentioned you have very controlling fathers. So how did this play out, Veronica? Well, we have to back up a little bit because the cult continues to have influence on me after I've gone to college and left my dad. Wow. Okay. When, I'm, when I'm 18, I'm, I have not been allowed to get a driver's license. Um, I've just barely been allowed to get a social security card. There's ways in which my father is just trying to keep me imprisoned at home. And to understand that, it's it's not just his fear of the world. It's the fact that he's very possessive over me and my sister. He had two daughters. Mm. That's all there was. It was just me and my okay. sister. And he was molesting both of us. Oh, my. So um, 
he he molested her worse than I. She was like daddy's favorite. Oh no. And, and I was more of a scapegoat who was constantly at odds with him. We'd argue and there was a lot of push pull. Yeah. But but still he was a possessive lover and he he used to I didn't never had sex with my dad, no nor oral sex, anything like that. It was fondling and okay. And, and and then threats. And what he used to say to me was, if you ever lose your virginity, I would have a very hard time not having sex with you too. Wow. So this threat had been hanging over my head for years from my dad. And I did sneak out one night, even though it was really difficult, but I snuck out to lose my virginity with my boyfriend when I was 17. Mm-hmm. And now I was afraid my dad was going to be able to tell that I was no longer a virgin and that he was going to rape me. It's just a horrible thing for a daughter to feel about their own dad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, that didn't happen, but he kept checking. He says, are you still a virgin? I go, yeah, I'm still a virgin. He says, do this at the breakfast table or the dinner table. Oh, my God. And and it's just horrible, the fear that I had. Um, but then my boyfriend finally got the nerve to like, want to come down on our property. And it really wasn't our property. We were caretakers for this local millionaires old burnt down sawmill site. That's what we lived on. It wasn't really Mm -hmm. habitable, but our trailer was there. We had sewer and water and electricity. And he came down and uh, my dad immediately goes outside to talk to him and tells all of us that we have to stay inside. We don't get to be part uh, of this conversation. Oh, uh-oh. And then he co- my dad comes back about a half hour later and he says, well, I took care of that. I told him if he ever shows his face around here again, I will blow his head off. Oh, oh. And so, did that threat work? My dad had a thing about guns. He always had guns around and they were all fully loaded. Okay. And he, he did his own reloading for ammunition. So he was kind of a survivalist in ways mm-hmm. before that was a thing. But he, yeah. yeah. And my mom, of course, with the doomsday cult, thought the end of the world was coming and she canned a lot of stuff. Yeah. I was going to say, so they were both rowing the same direction on that. Yeah. Yes. I'm not saying she liked the guns, but um, they were everywhere. Yeah. And um, so I knew, I knew my dad could do it. Yeah. I'd never, well, I actually had seen him hold a loaded gun on my aunt and uncle one time. Cause wow. um, and he, and he did that for several hours while my aunt packed up all her stuff and left. Cause she had moved into the little tin can next to us. Um, temporarily because she was needed housing. Yeah. And the reason she was leaving is because my father had come on to her sexually. Oh. And this hello. was my mother's younger sister. It was just horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. So I knew my dad was uh capable of at least threatening to kill people in a really serious way. And I always wondered, would he or could he? And I had a fear my whole life that my father was a rapist and a murderer at oh. heart. He clearly was a rapist. Yeah, he was. He raped my sister when she was 13. For real. Oh, poor love. And there's just a tremendous burden of terror 
that is going to live in your body when you are under a circumstance like that. And my mother's not fighting back and my sister's not fighting back. And I was the one who would get in his face and try to fight back. But then I would also back down and, you know. Yeah. And you were probably also the one that caught most of the backlash. It is true. Yeah. But trying to get racehorse, how do I leave? So when he threatened my boyfriend, who I was very much in love with, who, by the way, was also born into the same cult. Ah, that's the only way I met anybody. It was well, going- yeah, of course. It goes without <laughs> saying almost, right? Where else would you yeah. meet anyone? <laughs> oh, where? Uh, there were cows next door. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I told my dad, if you blow his head off, I will blow your head off. Oh, there you go. Fight fire with fire. At that point, my father uh, grabbed me and um, started pulling my hair and dragging me across the living room floor. And then he threw me up on the couch and he pinned my uh, arms back so that I couldn't move my hands. And he started beating me in the face. And what has always really bothered me about this is that he planted his blows so that I got an egg size welt up here, but he didn't do any damage here. And this is actually what domestic violence perpetrators do. Yes, they they will strategically position where they hit you so it's less yeah. apparent what is going on to the rest exactly. of the world. Exactly, exactly. It would take years for me to understand that moment. All I knew is that I said, you know, um, I'm leaving. And I thought at this point, I'm going to go find my boyfriend and we'll be together. I'm not staying here anymore. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm 17 and I don't have a driver's license and I don't have a social security card yet. I might have a bank account with 20 bucks in it. I'm not sure yet, but I, I mean, he's just really hobbled me so that I can't function in society. Yeah. But my boyfriend's parents are in the cult and it's familiar. And I've been to their house many times and my grandmother lived two miles away. And so um, as I I said, I'm just going to go get my stuff. And he said, you don't own anything. Oh, you're leaving with nada. Nothing, nothing. What he did is he gave me a winter coat and a toothbrush. He was such an asshole. I'm sorry, but he he was just horrible. Yeah. The the, um, sarcasm and cruelty in this moment was... Uh, shocking to me. I mean, I, I knew my dad had all these criminal elements and this insanity, but I still thought he loved me. And in this moment, I don't feel any love at all. Yeah, it's, it becomes pretty clear where the extent of his love goes to and it goes almost nowhere. So I'm walking out with the coat and a toothbrush and he tries to hand me a dime. And I looked at him and I said, um, that's okay. You keep it. I think you need it more than I do. Wow. You Pull go, girl. Of, you I, go, girl. <laughs> I, I, that's just, a, I, you know, IFS, Eternal Family Systems, is all about parts. That part, I call it the gunslinger. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, how am I else am I going to deal with a father who's this gunslinger in his way, you know, was to become fight fire like with fire like you said yeah so i walked up to my grandmother's house and called my boyfriend and he's nowhere to be found he's just scared to death because i'll bet he freaking is (laughs) (laughs) 
he goes and gets drunk somewhere and disappears for three days. But I'm at his parents' house because his cousin comes to pick me up. And um, and then I think it was just too much for my uh, boyfriend because he finally shows up and he said that he wasn't good enough for me and he broke up with me. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And I was just so bereft and heartbroken. And his father and mother offered to take me in as one of their own. They were going to buy me a car. They were going to get me a new wardrobe and they were going to let me go to high school. Now, wow. you would think that this sounded like an awesome setup and it really was. And it was I was going to say, yeah, manna from heaven. <laughs> yeah, but there was pedophilia in that home too. Oh, see, yeah. And that... see, by, by then at age 17, I had hit my father in the testicles for trying to grab my breasts for the millionth time. And he wasn't touching me anymore. Ah, yes. And you want to keep it that way. And now I'm looking at my boyfriend's father and the lust that I see in his eyes. I just don't have it in me to try to train another pedophile to leave me alone. Yeah, understandably. So, and then meanwhile, my mother is guilting me and shaming me home. Your father's sorry. He wants to apologize. You know, we miss you. You need to come home. She was lying. He wasn't sorry at all. But she was yeah. Telling him the same lie that I was sorry and wanted to come home. Yeah, exactly. She was playing flying monkey. <laughs> totally true. So I came home to the to the pedophile that I had control over, not not his violence, but I had some control over his sexual perpetrations towards me. And that mattered to me because I still didn't have a car or money or anything. And I guess I could have taken it from the other family, but I still had so much attachment to, to my mother. Yeah. Well, and, and, and do you want the strings that would have come with that? Uh, I mean, I didn't because there would have been a mess of strings. I was scared of that. Yeah. And I absolutely. thought, you know, I'll go home and on some level, I feel more protected there, even though my father just beat me up and threatened to kill my boyfriend. And that's just the truth. So I went wow. back home and we kind of had a detente, me and my dad. And I was applying for colleges, got accepted at Oregon State. And just before I left, my father said, took me aside. And now this was another part of my dad. Because mm -hmm. people have parts. So this other oh, yeah. part shows up. It's very loving. And in his own way, in his own worldview, he says to me, there's no reason for you to go to college. Just wasting Uncle Sam's money. Because we're poor. I got grants. Yeah, you got grants, of course. And yeah. you're smart. So, of course, you got scholarships. Totally. Yeah. And he says, no reason for you to waste Uncle Sam's money. You're, just stay here. Get yourself a job. You will get married and have babies of your own very soon. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them might actually share DNA with dad. Oh, my God. So I was like, um, thanks, dad. And I'm going to college. Because I am so freaking out of here. I was so out of there. But when I got to college, I still... The boyfriend who broke up with me tried to get me back. That's kind of pulling me back into the cult. Mm -hmm. That's when I went to um, 
the state of Washington, I think it was uh, Tacoma, where we had our church convention and Herbert W. Armstrong said he was the right hand of God. And finally, I was like, I'm getting, I've got to leave the boyfriend, leave this cult. I'm, a, I'm really out of here now at 19. But it took a whole year. Yeah, well, but you broke a whole lot of chains that a lot of people don't succeed in breaking. My and sister I, stayed. I want that. to salute you for that oh. because you did it at a very young age. And relatively speaking, you did it fast. You know, thank you for that reframe. I've always thought, I've always thought, God, you should have taken the car and the wardrobe. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> you, you could have handled him. Um, <laughs> 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 you could have driven off in the car. Um, but, you know, you, it's easy to say that now. But back at that time, that's not the easiest decision to make. There's also this thing like, you know, I think about how dogs return to abusive masters. Yes. It's just some, if it's all you've ever known. Mm hmm. Yep. And, and the familiar, the predictability. The hope that has a value. Yeah. My, you know, the hope that my mother was telling the truth and my dad was sorry. Yeah, that was that was there. And of course he wasn't. We both looked at each other waiting for the apology that wasn't coming. Oh, yeah. Never, ever. Probably. Yeah. 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 No, you did a beautiful job of freeing yourself, my love. And you na navigated it really. What I want to say, relatively speakful and gracefully um because i mean we we tell the story now and we're a little distant from the emotion and some of the stuff that was going on as we do the telling uh but that's a lot of heavy emotion right there there's a huge crushing weight of fear that comes with those kinds of death threats that you know have the ability to become reality um true. and, and and manipulators, I mean, as much as they promise, oh, you're going to get the wardrobe, you're going to have the car, life's going to be beautiful and whatever, they always have a way to maintain that control. They get the car, but it doesn't actually go in your name, right? You, they get the car, but they continue to put off your, your getting your driver's license and driving lessons. And yes. so I, I think instinctively, you recognized that oh. as beautiful as that sounds on the surface, oh, I've fallen in clover, that that wasn't going to be the reality. I got to tell you, you're a great therapist. Thank you. <laughs> it's just, I never actually, I mean, I'm, I just wrote 76,000 words about this, this childhood of mine, and I did not see that. But that, that is absolutely true, of course somebody who has got that kind of orientation is and you know to me uh, not all pedophiles are the same they are not no. all gonna crawl through your bedroom window and attack your kids um mostly they pick on their own children exactly or close relatives who are in yeah. or someone that they have some other form of power control over whether it's a yeah. teacher or a preacher or whatever it is and emotionally, my experience of the of the the um, the pedophiles in both sides of my family it varied. Like my great grandfather on my mother's side mm -hmm. had raped my grandmother and molested yes. my mother. Mm -hmm. 
that man had very dark energy. I, I hated him. Yeah. Uh, and then my uncle uh, Bob on my dad's side of the family, same thing, violent, dark energy in that man. And he, yeah. had, he had like raped every single one of his siblings. And there were 11 of them. Isn't that something? It was horrible. We but we, we are yes go ahead well, give me that and then we'll the go aunts, to break the aunts and the uncles who were molested and and raped went on to do some of their own perpetrations not every single one of them but but they're very different people they're like these survivors that are kind of reenacting what happened to them yeah almost as a catharsis more than anything else well it's like they're childlike, like they don't yeah. understand the power that they have as an adult. That is not to excuse them or minimize the impact on the survivor is just as horrific. Oh, but, absolutely. But their energies are very different. Um, and one of the things that I think is universally true is narcissism. Oh, absolutely. And on that note, we're going to go to break because boy, can we talk about narcissism for a few minutes. <laughs> uh, everyone who's joined us here today, you've got that pen, you've got that piece of paper, you've, you've written down some things about your own life, your own judgments, your own thoughts that have been coming up as you've come along. Um, and I know what we've discussed is probably continuing to be triggering for people. So again, I'd like you to go back to that list and keep keeping track of the things that are pushing your buttons, because these are the areas where your subconscious is telling you, you know what, there may be an opportunity for us here to do some work to clear out a trigger that has been sitting there from my own childhood that I've thought I'd worked through, but yet here it is, or a judgment that keeps coming up about, well, you know, they brought it on themselves. Some of these stories that we tell about victims, this sort of thing, keep track of that because this is your, your list of self-work when we get out of here and hang with us. We'll be right back from the break when we deal into narcissism. <laughs> Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Hey, beautiful soul. Sophia Renea Morales here. I've been doing Sovereign Self for over a year now, and I would like to hear from you. Tell me what you want to hear in coming shows. Leave a quick voice message at 520-261-6827. And let me know, how has the show supported you? Where should we go next? Or are you perfectly content with where we're going at the moment? That number, 520-261-6827. Thank you so much for your feedback. It's crucial in informing where I take the show next. Thank you, and go out and live soul first. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Sovereign Self with Sophia Renea Morales. We'd love to hear from you on the show today. Call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or if you'd prefer, send an email to asksophia at transformationspace.co. Now, 
back to Sovereign Self. Thanks for hanging in with us through the break. This is Sophia Renee Morales. I am here with the amazing and wonderful Veronica Monet. And we have been parsing through her early life journey. And we've gone pretty deep with this one because a lot of us hear these stories at a very superficial level. You hear the the executive summary. It's like, yeah, I survived a cult and I survived religious abuse and, and I had this beautiful awakening and, and now I'm on this mission. And we forget just how dense everything that person went through to get to that moment of awakening and that taking all of that trash and turning it into treasure. And how you get these amazing diamonds in your world is you are put under intense pressure. And that's how that diamond forms. And a lot of us, I know on a personality level, (laughs) um, that sucks. I mean, let's be real about it. That kind of pressure sucks, but it will make you in so many ways and create such beautiful clarity and facets that you would not have otherwise formed if you hadn't gone through that. And so I'm deliberately digging deep on this story um, because I want you to come to the realization of what she went through so that you can come to the realization of perhaps why you're going through some of the really hard things that you're facing right now and to know that amazing things are developing for you as you endure this pressure you're gaining clarities that you wouldn't have otherwise received you're discovering depths of strength that you did not realize you had you are discovering your true values and your mission in this world as part of going through this process. And I know it sucks, sweetheart. It sucks so bad. But it is also such a tremendous blessing on the other side. And I want you to know that you've got this. Other people have survived similar things. And so that's why we're digging so deeply into the story of survival and thrival after she's cleared these amazing hurdles that arrived early in her life. And so that's why we're doing this. I wanted y'all to be aware of that. And now let's talk about narcissists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I have a few things to say about that. I'm sure you do too. Um, First of all, it's a really necessary part of child development to go through a narcissistic stage. Oh yeah. And we but all... it's very different than what we see with an established adult narcissist. Let's throw that yes. out there also. They are different. They are different. And yet there's some relationship. So yeah. one of the things that happens is that the person who suffers from narcissistic personality disorder has often had a traumatic event mm-hmm. while they were in that stage. Yeah, and that, that's always been my theory. The reason that someone gets stuck as a narcissist their entire life has to do with the fact that they never pass that developmental stage. Exactly. And trauma will do that. It will freeze you at whatever moment in time that that happened in your development unless you deliberately go in to do something about that. Well, I would tweak that because I'm yeah. a go for it. Systems. 
Uh, <laughs> internal family systems informed. So looking it through that filter, right? we all have parts. And I oh, think yes. this is what can become very confusing when you're dealing with somebody who suffers from, and I, I, that is how I choose to say it, they suffer from narcissistic personality disorder, that you also encounter other parts, parts mm. that sometimes can be, um, and it depends, by the way. It right. depends if this, if they're, in IFS, we call it being completely blended with a part. That part has like taken over. It's, it's in charge of everything. Yeah. There, there are other parts inside that person, but now they don't get to express themselves. But sometimes, and a lot of times, people actually have a narcissistic personality disordered part that shows up when they are stressed or threatened. Yes. But they are capable of doing things that are... Um, generous and giving and loving the rest of the time. And, and that's is, almost more whiplash, emotional whiplash than dealing with a straight narcissist because you know what to expect. <laughs> which is the working title in my memoir, The Whiplash Between the um, Magic and the Misery. Mm. I believe my father suffered from narcissistic personality disorder. He was never diagnosed. But yeah. when I encountered that part, it was icy cold in there. Yeah. It's no mercy, no empathy, no caring. Uh, it's cruel. And, um, and yet I had many encounters with my father where that part wasn't there. And I, yeah. would, I was dealing with somebody who was childlike and who, who tearfully came to confess to my sister and I that he had lost his virginity before he married our mother because he felt that that was a profound sin and he also felt that he needed to be honest with us. And it was very difficult to understand how one part of my father believed in monogamy and, and being a virgin when you got married. Mm -hmm. And another part of my father denied, well, another part of that, my father felt entitled to touch my body and rape my sister. Those two parts never seemed to communicate with each other. Yes. And when I confronted my father about what he was doing to me sexually and to my sister, I was always talking to the other part that didn't know it was happening. Now, this is an extreme case of disassociation going right. on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my father had something of a split personality. And that's why I choose to say he was mentally ill because yeah. none of it makes sense. And he had obsessive compulsive disorder and paranoia and all kinds of horrible afflictions. Well, and dissociation, again, is another indication of some kind of extreme trauma that went on. It's a survival mechanism that the body will flip into. And I don't and have to look. The challenge far. comes when it doesn't flip back off. <laughs> I don't have to look far to find that trauma. All I got to do is look at his older brother, absolutely Bob, twenty years older than him, and and look at the fact that he is growing up in extreme poverty, where uh, four boys to a bed. Yeah. And there is all kinds of child molesting going on. It's kind of hard to call it child molesting because they're all children, but they're all having sex with each other with my father in the bed. And my father would cry and run to his mom's bed for safety. Yeah. So interestingly enough, towards the end of his life, he had put five uh, bolts on his bedroom door. And he had five safes and every one of them had guns and ammo in them. 
Yeah, because he does not feel safe at a very fundamental level. Yeah. Yeah, and there were um, five boys. Yeah. And I don't know if he was also trying to protect himself from himself, but I just, I looked at that and went, or actually, excuse me, there were seven boys. So he's one of them. So now there's six, six boys. And one of them had died and was always mentally deficient. So he really wasn't a threat to anybody. I feel firmly that my father was terrified on a subconscious level of being raped by his brothers. And that's why he had those five gun safes and those five locks on his bedroom door. Yeah. And it's, I feel compassion for him. I do. And he was definitely a narcissist. I mean, as a child, I couldn't get, you know, the toys that I wanted. Well, we couldn't afford it, but he could afford, you know, four motorcycles and 20 guns and, um, you know, five binoculars and expensive camera equipment, whatever he wanted. He got well, whatever he needed. That was first on the list. <laughs> Wait, so yeah. I'd like to rewind you just a little bit. Yes. Okay. You made a statement that I feel compassion for him. How long did it take you to get to that point? Because oh, I yeah. suspect it took a minute. <laughs> what, what did you go through to get to that point? Well, should I introduce my spiritual awakening? Because I, I think perhaps if that's part of this trajectory of getting to feeling compassionate for the narcissism and the one that abused it you is. in so many ways. Yeah, I, I leave home and I turn into a flaming alcoholic addict. And um, pretty, then, pretty predictable, right? Because you're medicating all of this stuff that you don't oh, want to feel. Oh, yes. And I'm incredibly promiscuous, too, because I'm just I'm having sex or doing drugs to try to tamp down all emotions. Yes. And I, of course, have confused sexual attention with love. So I want yeah. to feel loved. And so I have a lot of meaningless sex that I'm not having orgasms. I'm anorgasmic. I'm so shut down and out of my body. I can't feel anything anyway. Yeah. But, but, I, but I, I feel wanted. Right. And, the, and that's a, a cheap replacement for actually feeling loved. Typical yeah. incest survivor pattern to either go yeah. asexual or promiscuous. Uh, so I end up getting that college diploma and I graduated with honors. I had to do a lot of, of controlled, you know, around my drinking, like, okay, I won't drink until I read 300 pages for my final and now I'm <laughs> drunk. <laughs> and I, so I got the degree and, and I've got to graduate with honors. And my first thought was, oh, thank God, I finally get to drink all the time. Oh, Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so needless to say, the companies that I went to work for had a very powerful drinking culture. So the first yeah, because you wouldn't fit in a company that did not. <laughs> no. So everybody was an alcoholic, and I fit right in. And um, then I got a DUI, and I totaled my car, and my fiance was very violent with me, and. Um, I got into um, cocaine in a big way. And those last two years uh, from age 23 to 25 really took me down. Yeah. And I started having some um, spiritual events in my house where oh. I felt haunted by dark spirits. Okay. So tell me a little bit about how that was showing up for you. 
One time I went into the bathroom and I was sitting on the toilet and I looked up and there was a pair of disembodied green eyes staring back at me. Hmm. Yeah, that's freaky. Yeah, it terrified me. I went running from the bathroom screaming and I wouldn't go back in there for any money in the world. And my fiance came home and I told him there's something in the bathroom. I can't go in there. And he, I didn't tell him what. He walked into the bathroom. He said, get the hell out of here. You don't live here. All right. Go fiance. (laughs) Then he came back out and he said, green eyes, right? And I said, I didn't tell you that. I did not tell you what was in the bathroom. I just told you there was something in the bathroom. And he just did not want to believe that he saw what he saw. So he said, I think you gave me a post-hypnotic suggestion. And I go, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. How would I? I don't know anything about (laughs) hypnoticing. (laughs) Oh, my God. It scared me to death. But I didn't stop doing cocaine. Mm. And um. I would, there was so much drama. We had domestic violence and suicide and I didn't try suicide, but my, my fiance tried to suicide. And it was just like every single weekend, there was an emergency vehicle parked in front of our apartment. Wow. And it was just becoming the new normal. Um, and we lost our jobs, but we were dealing drugs and you know, the, we can't afford the cocaine. You start doing speed. That's a totally, that just will, that's dark. That is dark. You start getting into crystal meth. It's dark. And it was short-lived for me. I'm really grateful for that. But what happened was I went to see a psychologist and asked him, oh, I need help. I don't understand all this stuff that's going on in my life. And he says, lady, and I was 25 at the time. I thought, I'm not old. Why is he saying lady? Why are you calling me lady? I'm I'm still a young thing. (laughs) And he goes, lady, you're an alcoholic. And until you're ready to deal with that, I can't help you. And I was really insulted. <laughs> so okay. Tell me I, about really insulted. Well, I have a college diploma. I work in an office. I drive a car. I have an apartment. Aren't alcoholics these old men in trench coats lying in the gutter with a brown paper bag? Yeah. <laughs> I had this vision of what alcoholics. Yeah, was. exactly. Yeah. So I mean that was that was 1985. I it was just a different time and people had a lot of stereotypes about drunks. Yeah, exactly. Well, and we're coming up on the very end of the show and I know this one's going to be a double. So we're going to we're going to put a pin in this. Yes, and, and I Next week, we are going to come and find out how you came to terms with accepting that alcohol was a problem and that it might mean something different and And, the spiritual stuff that goes with that. spiritual awakening that led to my sobriety. I love that. So hang with us for next week's episode. It's going to be amazing. And... uh, Keep making that list of buttons that are getting pushed. And we'll talk a little bit about what to do with those buttons next week as well. And so I would love to hear from you if you have any feedback on the show, topics you'd like to see covered, or particular guests you'd like to suggest to have on the show for these sorts of discussions. You can send me a quick email at askzofia, A-S-K-Z-O-F-I-A, 
at transformationspace.co. And until next week, go out and live soul first. Thank you for being a part of our program this week. Sovereign Self can be heard live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Please join host Sophia Renea Morales again next week right here 